I went down into the tunnel. There were 20 people behind me. I started to dig. I had no air. I had an iron rod, and when I got to the end, I used it and made an opening, and another. Finally, air. I told them to turn out the light and take off the chains. You're listening to Remembering Vilna, the Jerusalem of Lithuania. I'm Eleanor Risa. Chapter 8, Nazi Defeat. In this episode, you'll hear the voices of Mira Verbin, Abram Zheleznikov, William Begel, Samuel Bach, Sheila Zvani, Mira Berger, and Chaim Basok, as well as diary entries by Hermann Crook. We continue with Yitzchak Dugim. I made a hole and poked my head out. I saw the Germans sitting, facing our prison. We were now behind them. Yitzchak was part of a forced labor crew in Ponar, the mass murder site outside Vilna. There, they were ordered to exhume and burn tens of thousands of bodies. They had also spent months digging a secret tunnel out of their underground prison. Finally, the time had come to attempt an escape. We started to climb out one after another. We started to crawl in a line. We crossed through a field, then got into the trees, so I got up to walk. But when I got up, I fell into a hole, not very deep, that had been dug for new bodies. Just at that moment, the Germans turned on spotlights and started shooting. My head was out of the pit, and there were bullets sailing past me. The others fled. I climbed out and followed them. Someone had pliers to cut the fence, and we went through. Five or six of us made it. They were still shooting. We crossed a shallow stream and ran. We went into some bushes and sat down. We were so tired, we slept. Some hours later, I heard the sound of cars. Two cars came close with dogs. A German passed right by me with a dog. The dog sniffed my hand, but continued on. Why didn't the dog stop? I think it is because we smelled like dead people. We worked with dead people. Yitzchak and several others escaped on April 15, 1944. They walked for nearly a week, skirting hostile villages and digging for leftover potatoes, until they joined a group of Soviet partisans. Several hundred Jews from Vilna had already joined partisan groups in the forests outside the city. Mira Verbin was one of them. There was an assembly, and they brought us in. 
They announced the establishment of a Jewish brigade. That seemed good. But on the third day, they invited each of us individually for a talk. We started to worry. People were coming out of the meetings without their watches, without their leather coats and sweaters, without shoes or boots. The commander told us that weapons were expensive. We had no money, and these items would pay for weapons. Those who had weapons had to hand them in, and the partisan leaders would redistribute them as they saw fit. Some refused to give up their weapons, saying they were earned with blood. But they took all the weapons from us. In the next few days, we saw the officers walking around in our boots and coats, wearing our watches and sweaters. It was horrible. Then they told us they were dismantling the Jewish brigade and that all groups would be mixed. We slept in wooden bunkers that stuck a little above the ground. We slept with our clothes and shoes on. We did not change. There were severe problems with hygiene. We cooked at night so no one could see the smoke. By then everyone had a weapon. I had a short Soviet rifle. It was a festival of anti-Semitism there. They'd say, ah, Jewish and brave. Who ever heard of such a thing? When one of our women was killed at her funeral, the commander said, even though she was Jewish, she was a brave fighter. Abram Zelesnikov had also joined a group of partisans in the forest. It was a very hard time because we didn't have enough weapons. And not having um, enough weapons, you haven't been given to go and fight. Of course, the, the Russians, being military men, got higher positions than the Jews, and the commander of our group was a Captain Vasilenko. He was very strict with the partisans, especially strict with the Jewish partisans, and very unpleasant to the Jewish girls. The forest was dangerous because we were young women. There were Soviet paratroopers in the forest who were sent there to rest after completing their combat service. And they were hungry for women. There was a, a group of about 60 in our group, and I think that it was about 12 girls. Of course, uh, the, the girls didn't want to send to fighting uh, to fights and put them in the kitchen. And there was also sexual advances where we had to defend the, the Jewish girls. There was no one to talk to about it. In the partisans, women had to pay with their body to get food, soap, anything they needed. If you promised and did not fulfill your promise, you would suffer. A woman had two options. Either have a man next to you or be strong enough to cope. To cope, you had to know how to curse. I had a friend who was with me in the forest who was very helpful for us. They would say, don't start with her because you'll never hear the end of it. I did not know how to curse. 
Vasilenko was a very good military man. And our group was well organized. What we have been doing is we derailed railways. We cut down communication, telephone, telegraphs, and we gathered information about German formations. Then it starts the Soviet of offensive in Smolensk, where the tanks went three weeks in front of the infantry. The order was that we have to go, out, all the partisans from the forest has to go out to go to Vilna. Abram's partisan brigade moved toward Vilna. Approximately 1,000 Jews were still living in the Hakape labor camp inside the city. One of them was 15-year-old William Begel. In June of 1944, we heard through BBC, because we're listening to BBC all the time, that the Russian front in our sector started moving and we all knew that the Russians are going to be there within a matter of a week. On the 30th of uh, June 1944, the major who was in charge of the camp told us that we are being evacuated because the camp must move together with the front line and in order to give us a hint that we're about to be killed, he said, and just to reassure you, I want to tell you that you will be escorted by uh, the SS, which, as you know so well, is an organization for the protection of refugees. And I quote him, this was as good a, uh, a warning that we'll be killed as any, and that night, uh, I escaped. From the second floor of the machine shop, there were some uh, young people, including myself. We cut through the grates, we jumped to the back of the camp, and we ran away. This was about 10, 11 o'clock at night, and uh, since the camp was in the suburbs, there were a lot of dogs, and there was barking all over the place and we sat in a garden at uh, 6, 7 o'clock in the morning when it became light. There were two people with me. One of them uh, looked very much like a Jew. He had a long nose, and my friend did not. And I said, well, unfortunately, you can't go with us. You have to go by yourself. William went to stay with a non-Jewish friend of his father's. He thought the outskirts of the city would be safe, but the neighborhood turned out to be an epicenter in the battle for Vilna. During one noontime, when the f shells were falling all around us and we're sitting in a, in a uh, cellar of one of the summer houses, uh, the door to the cellar opens up and the Germans yelling, Raus! And we come out and the Germans say, you are... Uh, partisans, and you'll get killed because we, our people have been shot at by partisans all the time, 
and uh, you're obviously one of them. And they put us against the wall. And believe me that when you look at a, at a machine gun or an automatic pistol pointing at your belly from uh, maybe five feet and about to be killed, the, uh, the size of the muzzle looks like the, like the size of a, of a large uh, artillery piece. And I said, what are you talking about? What kind of partisans? And I spoke German quite well at that time. We are women and children. We are afraid of the artillery shelling. And uh, the, please let us go back, because you can get killed with these artillery shells. And the Germans, they started laughing. And they said, OK, go back to you. Go back to the cellar. And I went to the cellar. And just to make myself more obnoxious, uh, on the way back, I said, Maybe you got a cigarette. The Nazis and the Soviets fought for every street and block in Vilna. The battle lasted for about two weeks. Ten-year-old Samuel Bach, his mother, and a handful of other Jews were hiding in a monastery. Now, I must say that the building where we were hiding was occupied by Germans. Now, the Germans started to peg, they started to leave, the bombs started to fall, and... Uh, at a certain point, uh, we had to leave that very room that was exposed to the street. And although there was about, um, I don't know, that much of books piled up in front of the windows, bullets came through the, those books and they landed in the, 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 in, the, in the wall opposite, through miracle not killing anybody. I remember I went to sleep and there was all of a sudden this terrible noise. And when I got up, I saw that on the wall, just near where I was sleeping, there was a row of, of holes from a machine gun. So um, we started to move out from there and try to, the, the, the building was abandoned now by the Germans. We tried to move towards the corridor and try to hide there. The bombing was very heavy and the building was a very ancient building. So the, the corridor was a more safe place because the walls there were, were more more heavy and uh, at a certain point I remember we um, we hid in an enormous uh, cupboard we must have been about six or eight people hiding in this enormous cupboard and then the tower of the church was hit by a bomb and it fell and it was a terrible noise and I asked my mother mommy do you think the Germans are also bombing the Louvre in Paris. And what about the Mona Lisa? The people around me started to laugh. The whole German army was in our backyard in, in those suburban houses. Then the entire civilian population was taken to uh, places of concentration into large centers, theaters, hospitals, warehouses, uh, schools, etc. This is uh, where I found myself in a warehouse with about five, six thousand Gentiles. There was only one other Jew, as far as I know. We were put uh, into very large rooms, and uh, a German sergeant walked in and said, Look, 
uh, make a list of people who is in that room, give uh, the beds to women and children, uh, select a, uh, a leader of your group. And then he said, does anyone here understand German? And I said, I understand German. I became the, the chief interpreter for about 6,000 people who were uh, concentrated in that warehouse. They never knew that I was Jewish. At a certain point, we felt a little more relaxed. Uh, there were no Germans anymore there, and uh, we can go back into our hiding place and maybe lit that oven and uh, warm up some water and so on, and that's what we did. Only to our misfortune. There was a Polish militia around trying to um, trying to deal with the fire that started in many places because of the bombing. And when they saw the smoke coming out, they thought it was a fire. They came rushing, the head of this Polish militia, who was known in that neighborhood as one of the worst anti-Semites, uh, discovered us. And he ran like mad to find some Germans that would deal with us. And he rushed after a truck with Germans that he tried to stop. And one of those blind bullets just landed in his belly, wounded him, and he died a few minutes after that. Another miracle. The liberation of Vilna, total liberation of Vilna, took place on the 13th of July. I didn't know where my mother and grandmother were, but I stood on the corner and I was wondering where the front line went because we were surrounded for about seven, eight days and there was a Russian major who was standing by while Soviet tanks were passing. And I said to him, uh, could you tell me, uh, comrade uh, major, where is the front line by now? And he said, and who the hell are you using uh, very profane language? And I said, with great pride, I am a Jew. I have escaped from camp. And he said, no Jew escapes from German camp. You must have been a collaborator with the Germans, because the Germans don't let Jews escape from camp. And as a matter of fact, to tell you the truth, I don't like Jews because they stay behind the front line and make love to our wives and sisters while we fight the Nazis. So if you don't want to get hurt, you better run. And boy, did I run. But this was my first encounter with reality of uh, Soviet anti-Semitism within 15 minutes of, of my liberation. Sheila Zvani's family had been hiding in the sewers under Vilna for nearly a year. The Polish man who had occasionally brought them food returned to help them get out. After we got liberated, we didn't know 
So the man, the gentleman, the super, opened the hall. He came to us and he started crying. He said, if I wouldn't be there, I would never believe that you could survive in these conditions and live through 10 months. But he said, after this, he said, I don't want it, nobody should know that I saved Jewish people. No, he was afraid. So then we went out, sick, hungry. We couldn't walk, the feet got swollen, the hand got swollen, we didn't have anything. The Russian came to us, and you know what he said? This is so stupid that he said, how come that you hide? Why did you not fight? We had to fight against them. We came out into the day of our liberation, which was a very scary day because the whole city was burning and the smoke was just going up. And there were dead soldiers, German and Russian, in the streets, and they started to be covered with flies because they were there already for days. Nobody was picking them up. Mira Berger had escaped from Gestapo headquarters when the ghetto was liquidated. She had false documents and had hidden as a non-Jew on the Aryan side. And I said to myself, now I'm going to walk. And I'm going to walk through the, the former Jewish quarters. And if I meet Jews in Vilna, fine. If I don't meet any Jews all the way from here to the Green Bridge, I will walk up to the Green Bridge where I grew up, and I'll jump straight into the village, and this will be the end. All right, so I walk and I walk, and I hear some people speaking Jewish. First of all, you could recognize them because they were, they were wearing torn clothes. I, I came over, are you Jewish? Jewish. Are there any, uh, where do you come from? Of course, they came from Lithuania, they were not, Lithu uh, not Vilna Jews. Are there any more Jews? Yes, where can I meet the Jews? Oh, there is a house here and here. And this and this street, there is a Jewish community in the process of being organized. I walked over there, and sure enough, and there's a list there. You'll find there a list of people. Everybody who comes signs his name. So you'll be able to go through the list. You can imagine the list wasn't that big. You could go through the list, and you'll see if you know somebody or not. And I come there. I don't know a living soul. All those who are there are either from Lithuania or from some provinces, none from Vilna. And I look through the names and I don't know a single name. So I'm going to, to I'm, going, I'm walking to my green bridge and as I walk and I come to the, to the river, I'm shocked. There's no green bridge. The green bridge was gone. It was bumped. There was some makeshift Makeshift bridge, no green bridge. I had no place to jump from. Mira Verben came back from the forest with a small group of Jewish partisans. Her shoes had disintegrated. She walked barefoot. 
We crossed the famous bridge of Vilna, and a woman ran towards me, crying and hugging me. You are alive. At least I know one person. I didn't know who she was, but she knew me. A Soviet officer saw us when we entered the city and directed us to an address where we would meet some friends. Jewish partisans who had come back from the forest and gotten an apartment together. Six or eight friends were hanging around on the sidewalk talking. When they saw us, nobody was able to speak. We were standing in two separate groups. They were on one side and we were on the other, and we were staring at each other, unable to speak. And then we went again to the, towards the house of our aunt. Only the, the bridge that we had to cross did not exist anymore. So we found a man with a little boat who was taking a lot of money to make people pass from one side to the other side. And there we arrived to my aunt's house. My mother started to look if there were any Jews around and she found that there were a few. I think there must have been about 200 Jews from Vilna in the town that came out from various hiding places, unbelieving that it was real, that they were alive. And uh, she also learned about the fact that uh, the body of my father was seen in Ponari. Of course, I started to look for my sister. I looked for her on every bus. I left notes on each wall and window. I registered with the Jewish community. People began to return from the concentration camps with horrific stories. They would tell stories about who survived and who didn't. When you want to believe someone is alive, you begin hoping. So I hoped maybe she would come back. Mira's sister was in a concentration camp called Kluge, in Estonia, which the Nazis still controlled. The Vilna ghetto librarian and diarist Hermann Kruk was also in that camp. He had hidden his original diary in the ghetto and started a new one in Kluge. July 14, 1944. Kluge concentration camp. What happens to us will be determined, first of all, by the camp. Evacuation is impossible, no place to go. Will they leave us here? Who knows? So we stand, perhaps more than ever before, on the boundary between life and death. Vilna is liberated, and here we groan under our yoke, crying over our lot. The FPO is surely now marching victoriously through the alleys of the ghetto, searching and looking. I hope they also try to save my materials. 
July 23rd. Our situation seems to be coming to a head. We are so upset. Our nerves choke us, and every day is superfluous. We count not just the days, but the hours and minutes. Any minute we may get out of hell. When I write about it, I can hardly believe it. In late summer, Hermann Crook was transferred to another camp. August 31st, Legatee. In the barracks, it is cold. The wind blows, and when it rains, it gets wet. Everything is damp. You can smell us rotting. September 17th, I received a package, a pleasure in the package, my Kluge diaries. Today, the eve of Rosh Hashanah, a year after we arrived in Estonia by the Jewish calendar, I bury the diaries in Legadi, in a barrack right across from the guard's house. Six persons are present at the burial. The next day, the Jews from Kluge and Legadi, including Hermann Crook, were ordered to pile up logs and lie on them. They were shot and killed. The pyre was burned. The Red Army liberated the area the next morning. Back in Vilna, Mira Verbin was still looking for her sister. A man who had escaped from Estonia brought news. I just thought I would go and talk to him. I wore a blue skirt, an elegant white shirt, clothes I had gotten from the joint, and I went there happy. When I went in, I found a guy dressed with rags, totally broken. I was so ashamed of myself, the way I had dressed up. That evening, he told me about my sister. She was in a camp in Estonia, Kluga, when the Red Army was closing in, already near the camp in the outskirts of the city, the Germans created a pyramid of wood and people. They burnt everyone alive. It was six hours before liberation. I accepted this as the truth, since my friend was trustworthy. Then I knew. I had no reason to wait and nobody to look for. Vilna was like a cemetery. I couldn't live there. I couldn't see every time I went through the ghetto. You saw the, 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 the like, graves. One time I went to Ponari after the war, you know, they took us. And the documents were still there, some blood still were there. This was from the last people what they killed. So couldn't stay in Vilna anymore. It wasn't for what. Anachnum Erev Yoma Kippurim. 
1944, on Erev Yom Kippur 1944, a group of us, partisans and fighters and survivors, set out to visit Ponar, to see the place where they destroyed the Jews. We traveled in red army trucks. We were crowded in, standing up, but each in our own world, preparing to witness that gate to hell. We passed the exclusive neighborhoods of Vilna, we passed the Zakrati woods, where people would go on vacation, and through a village called Ponari. We spotted it from a small grove in the woods. We saw a barbed wire fence, and we found ourselves on the edge of one of the pits. It was a deep pit, with a huge perimeter, many meters across, sand. We went down. It was a field of bones ground-up bones. We saw parts of hands, leg bones, people's scalps that were sticking out of the sand. The entire area was sown with bones ground to dust. The golden sand and the bones were mixed together like one substance. It was two months after Vilna was freed. There were only trees, bushes. Birds were chirping as if nothing happened. Nobody talked. We were each in our own thoughts. We were stepping on the bodies of our relatives, maybe brothers, grandparents, friends. We didn't know what was going on within ourselves. I think we were almost hallucinating. The sun was at its fullest. It was around noon. We didn't see the sun. I don't know if I cried. It was hard to know whether you were crying hysterical or frozen, or in a dream, running crazed as if you could find anyone alive. I saw in front of me the image of the prophet Yechezkiel, the Valley of Bones. But these were not dry bones. They were shredded, ground bones. I found an envelope for a yellow work permit, an ID, just the envelope. I filled the envelope with sand and bones. I put it in my pocket. I carried this envelope full of sand with me for many years. Someone recited psalms by heart and they said Kaddish in a heartbreaking cry. I've never seen a Kaddish like that. The crowd of men and women, everybody standing together. When we returned to Vilna, our eyes were red from crying, as if blood flowed instead of tears. It was the evening of Yom Kippur. We gathered where the great synagogue used to be, in the basement. The Kol Nidre service shook us. There were scheduled blackouts, so we had to pray quickly before the electricity went out. The Nazis and their Lithuanian collaborators murdered 60,000 people in Ponar. Approximately 45,000 of them were Jews. Within a year of the Soviet reoccupation of Vilna, 
nearly all of the small number of Jews who had survived the war fled. They came to realize that life for them under the Soviet regime was untenable. Chaim Basak stayed on and joined a covert Jewish organization that was helping young refugees escape from the Soviet Union and move to Israel. After Hermann Kruk was killed, one of the six people who saw where Kruk had buried his diary went back to retrieve it. He was the only one of the six witnesses to survive. episode, you heard the voices of Abram Zheleznikov, William Begel, Samuel Bach, Sheila Zvani, and Mira Berger, as well as Yitzchak Dugim, whose Hebrew testimony is voiced by Arnie Burton, Mira Verben, whose Hebrew testimony is voiced by Rachel Bachin, and Chaim Basok, whose Hebrew testimony is voiced by Claiborne Elder. You also heard diary entries of Hermann Crook, read by John Cariani. Next up, Chapter 9, Judgment and Revenge. This special series about Jewish life in Vilna is written and produced by Nahani Rouse and Eric Marcus. Stephen Naren is the executive producer. Our composer is Leover Gerbin. Our theme music is an arrangement of Vilna Vilna, the 1935 song by A.L. Wolfson and Alexander Olshinetsky. The cellist is Clara Lee Rouse. Our audio mixer is Anne Pope. This podcast is a collaboration between the Fortunoff Video Archive for Holocaust Testimonies at Yale University and YIVO, the Institute for Jewish Research. I'm Eleanor Risa. You've been listening to Remembering Vilna, the Jerusalem of Lithuania. <laughs>